Acts. So if you would, open your Bibles to Acts. The title of the series is First Followers. You know, the book of Acts is the story about Jesus' first followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing the good news of Jesus' kingdom with the world. You know, it begins with Jesus personally commissioning his followers, and then it ends with this open door for uh, that work to continue through our lives. So what were the priorities of the early church? What prophecies were fulfilled? What boundaries were broken? What prejudices were undone? How did it become the multi-ethnic worldwide movement that it is today? The book of Acts is a window into the heart and the mission and the unstoppable love of Jesus through his first followers. It's a crazy ride and we've been given a front row seat. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you that we get to dive into this book together for the summer and, and explore what you were doing in and through the early church, your first followers, Jesus' first followers. Father, thank you that, Lord, you're still at work now through our lives. Father, help us to connect the dots. Help us to learn from the early church what it means to be the church here and now. Guide us, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Acts, let me give you some background here. The book of Acts was written by a follower of Jesus named Luke, who authored the Gospel of Luke. And Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And we'll see him writing actually in first person in the book of Acts later in the book. He's with Paul on some of his journeys. But Acts is the sequel. It's actually part two of the Gospel of Luke. In Acts 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, he explains his former book was, quote, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And so Luke, he's writing about Jesus and now what he's continuing to do in and through his first followers. And he's writing actually to the same man that he wrote Luke to, a gentleman named Theophilus. We learn about Theophilus actually in Luke chapter 1. So let's look at what we can learn here about Luke and Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus, he writes. It's a title of respect. Who was this Theophilus? There's a lot of speculation. Was he a, a, a new believer in Jesus, anxious to spread the word, eager to learn and to grow? Did he generously support Luke as he wrote the Gospel of Luke and then the sequel, the book of Acts? We don't really know. We just know that Luke is addressing his Gospel and now part two, the sequel, the book of Acts, uh, to Theophilus, recognizing him in these books. Luke was a phenomenal writer. He was a researcher. He was an actual participant in the ministry of the early church. 
He was connected to eyewitnesses of Jesus, though he wasn't an eyewitness himself. He was a Gentile, meaning he wasn't a Jew. And he was a physician of some kind. Why did Luke write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts? Again, he says it in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. So that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He wants Theophilus, and now he wants us to know the certainty. To know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, traditionally, uh, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. But it's really, when you think about it, the Acts of Jesus Christ through the church. And it's exciting at every turn. It focuses on events over a fairly long period of time, as we'll find out as we get into this book. But why this book for local church, St. Pete? Why this book and why now? Well, we're a new church. We're just six months old. And I think we have a lot to learn from the early church. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus? What does it look like on the ground, just day to day? We're going to explore what was the early church devoted to? What did they give themselves to? What did it look like to be followers of Jesus at the very beginning? We're going to learn from them. I'm excited about that. What does it mean that the Spirit of God has been imparted, has been poured out, that we now are spirit people, those who follow Jesus, have the presence of God with us everywhere we go? What does that mean? Why does it matter? What does it mean to faithfully live as followers of Jesus? So Acts is really our history. Jesus now continues to act in and through his followers right now. Us. So here in chapter 1, we find that the disciples, the apostles, are eagerly waiting for something they knew was going to happen. Now that's where we find them, at least at the end of this chapter. They're waiting eagerly. What were they waiting for? What did Jesus promise them that they would be so anxious and and excited? Where did Jesus go? Because he, he left. And what does it mean now for our lives today? So let's look at Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And when they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, uh, when suddenly, I'm sorry, they were looking intently up into the sky uh, as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white robes, or in white, I'm sorry, what, what, what am I saying robes for? I'm thinking of the resurrection. There were guys in white. Let's keep going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. 
Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together uh, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama. That is field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place for leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Three things this morning that I want us to see. First, there's uh, instruction. Jesus commissions his followers. Second, there is an ascension. Jesus is taken up. He ascends as king of the world. And then third, there's anticipation. Jesus' followers wait and pray. So three words, instruction, ascension, anticipation. First, let's look at instruction. Jesus commissions his followers. We see this in the first eight verses. So after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to the apostles. The apostles are sent ones. That's what the word means. But these uh, men, we could say, are capital A apostles. They have a unique role that they play. They are eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and resurrection, and they're called to a special task. So Jesus uh, appears to his apostles over a period of 40 days, and he's giving them instructions through the Holy Spirit. He gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I love that. Not just a few convincing proofs. Many. Not some, but many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus' resurrection wasn't a figment of their imagination. They hadn't experienced some sort of large-scale group hallucination when they saw Jesus. He was alive. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, why? Why was he teaching them during this period about the kingdom of God? If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, when we walk through the Gospel of Luke, this was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom of God. 
The fact that God is reigning and ruling, and he's doing it through who? Through his son, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Where there's a kingdom, there's a king. And Jesus is proclaiming God's reign, God's rule, that it's a a just rule, a good rule, a loving rule. And he's calling people to himself to repent, to turn away from living for themselves as if they are king, and to bow to him as the king of their lives. And so he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a kingdom built on military might. It's the present and active rule of God through his son, Jesus. Jesus is transforming lives. He's reconciling people to God. He's restoring and he's making new. And this helps us understand the question that the apostles ask in verse 4. It seems maybe a little odd to us. As Jesus gives his commission, as he brings instruction through the Holy Spirit, they kind of interrupt him with a question. And look what they say in verse 4. If I can find verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they they gathered around him and asked him, here's their question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now what's going on there? He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift that my father has promised. Wait for the gift. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Old Testament prophets announced the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in connection with the new covenant, this this new promise that God has made. And you can read about this in Isaiah or Ezekiel, and and next week we'll learn uh, from Joel and Jeremiah. In fact, I want us to see uh, just one example of this promise uh, that they would have been holding on to. Let's look uh, at Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36 beginning in verse 24. Ezekiel says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, for I will take you out of the nations. He's speaking for God here. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back into your own land. So here's this prophecy of of God bringing back all the exiles, all those who have been held in captivity, all of Israel that's been scattered. And he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. You'll be unified. You'll be restored. He goes on to say in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. There's the promise. And so here the, the apostles are thinking, okay, it's, it's coming to pass. Everything we've been waiting for, the restoration of Israel, all those who have been in exile and captivity are now going to be unified and will be your people. You know, the promise of this pouring out of the Spirit, taking up residence in a new temple of sorts and transforming hearts forever. Jesus is saying, when that happens, you're going to be empowered to be my witnesses. Now, Jesus spent a considerable amount of time the night before he was crucified talking about the gift that the Father promised. 
And we don't have time to get into it, but I encourage you uh, to read John 15 and 16. You see this long discourse about the work of the Spirit. But in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit of God, the Helper, the gift that the Father promised. So Jesus is saying to his apostles, wait for the fulfillment of these new covenant promises expressed through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine the anticipation building in their hearts, the high-fiving of each other going on in that moment. It's happening. Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what John the Baptist was doing? He was preparing the way for Jesus. It was a baptism of repentance, a baptism of preparation for what would come. But John himself contrasted his ministry with Jesus. He says, listen, the one who comes after me, he's going to baptize uh, with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you uh, with the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water, but the one coming after me, the one who I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Full immersion, entering into the waters of the Holy Spirit, which symbolized renewal and cleansing, equipping and full-on identifying with God. So naturally, in light of all of this, in light of all the prophetic fulfillments, in light of all that's been happening, the, the apostles are saying, certainly Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. The expectation of Israel experiencing liberation from her oppressors and a special place over the nations, it's finally happening, they're saying. And he would restore Israel but in time and in a way that would blow the apostles' minds. Bigger than national Israel. Because Jesus had come for something far greater than redeeming and restoring only Israel. In fact, what we'll see is that as he gathers Israel to himself in the coming pages, Jews from all over the world gather together in Jerusalem. And as as he begins a work in their hearts, what happens is it begins to spread throughout all the nations. This, this ministry, this restoration. He tells them in verse 8, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses when the Spirit takes up residence in you. This power. It's where we get the word dynamite. Not power for triumph not over Rome, per se. But the power to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. God's salvation has arrived in Jesus. And you'll receive power to proclaim that good news. You're going to receive the strength and the ability to do it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they would carry on the work and the message of Jesus Christ. So in verse 8 of Acts 1, this verse really is the theme of the book of Acts. We could say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It presents an outlined approach of what would happen in the days to come. A plan of how this is all going to unroll. You'll begin in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying. Which we see in Acts chapters 1 through 7. And you you begin to preach in Judea, the neighboring area around Jerusalem. In Acts 8 through 12. And then in Samaria, which by the way is like your local enemy. The ones that you don't like at all. And then to the ends of the earth. The rest of the book of Acts. All the nations. So we have got instruction from King Jesus. Second, we have this ascension that's taken place. Jesus ascends as king of the world. He's taken up. And Jesus is taken up not into outer space, 
somewhere beyond the moon. Heaven is not up as if we could get high enough and reach heaven. It's another realm. It's a real place. But you know, it's not our final destination. We learned about what will be a new heavens and a new earth. Complete restoration of what is. But it is a real place. So Jesus ascends. He, he's taken up. He's taken up with clouds, which are symbolic of God's presence and power. Do you remember the cloud that appeared when Jesus was transfigured? He was transfigured in Luke chapter 9, and his disciples barely recognize him. They're just like falling on their face. He is radiant and beautiful, and this cloud just envelops him. Or remember the cloud that followed the nation of Israel by day in the desert? When they were leaving Egypt, their great exodus out of Egypt? Or do you remember the cloud of smoke that filled the temple after Solomon built it? Or do you remember in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where it speaks of one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven? Clouds. Symbolic of God's presence and power. So like the final puzzle piece that fits together, Jesus' ascension, his being taken up, it brought together and completed God's plan of redemption. And as the disciples, as the apostles were seeing this happen, all of a sudden just the the wheels would have been spinning. They would have been connecting the the prophecies and remembering Daniel chapter 7 especially. Or uh, Psalm 110, which is this beautiful messianic psalm of ascension and enthronement. Judgment, authority, power belongs to Jesus. He's being taken up. The early church wouldn't have missed this point. He's enthroned on high with all power and authority. You know, Jesus was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and rose again. But here Jesus ascends to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And this is full validation. This is full vindication that his life and his death in our place, it's actually sufficient. It's accepted by the Father. Mission accomplished. And as we read about his ascension, I think it's important for us not to just kind of go very quickly. We, we learn about his life and his death and his resurrection, and we're like, okay, he ascended naturally. But let's not just quickly move on to the next part of the story. It's kind of like when you're, you're listening to a song on the radio, and you just love this particular part in the song, and you're trying to get other people to appreciate that one part. Maybe there's like a, a riff, a guitar riff, or a drum beat or something. It's like, right, right there, right there. Do you hear it? And, and people are like, what, huh? What part are you talking about? Now that, that part right there. Let's, let's, I'm doing this to my wife all the time because I'm a musician. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she just kind of goes along. Yeah, I heard the part. Yep. Don't miss the significance. This is a big deal. It's an important part. Jesus is enthroned on high. Seated at the right hand of the Father. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. And like that, Jesus was gone. The clouds covered him. The apostles are left staring up. It's like staring at a beautiful sunrise or sunset, just lost in it. And then all all of a sudden, these guys in white show up. What's going on, guys? 
What are you doing? Huh? And it's in that moment that, that these men in white, they, they tell the apostles, he's going to come back the same way he's gone. And I imagine in that moment that the apostles, they realized, okay, we were asking, when are all these things going to happen? When are you going to restore uh, Israel? And, and, and yet you told us what we were called to do, and you're enthroned on high. You're the king over all the universe. You're the one with all power and authority and judgment. Oh, my. And I'm sure in that moment, as they were realizing just what was taking place, there were some great big hugs and lots of tears of joy because Jesus the one that they had been following and worshiping, now reigned in in his ruling and reigning with all authority and power. And there was a guarantee of what was to come, the gift of the Father, the presence of the Spirit. And they had a job to do, to be witnesses, when they were empowered to be witnesses. So whenever a new king or emperor was enthroned, heralds would go around to the territories and to the towns and cities and announce this new king's enthronement. And this is what's happening. Our king, the king of kings, has been enthroned. And the apostles were to be the start of this announcement. Number three, anticipation. Jesus' followers wait and they pray. There is all kinds of anticipation happening now. They've received instruction from the king. And the king has been enthroned. And now they're waiting. They're waiting for what the king promised would happen. That this gift would come. That they would be empowered by the Spirit. You know, my kids, they laugh at me whenever I uh, play their video games. Because I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I, I'm, I always have these crazy dreams where um, I'm, I'm going really high. And there's like this cliff to my left and to my right. And I'm, I'm like almost going to fall off. I don't know what it means. Maybe y'all can tell me later. Uh, but... Um, but then they've got me playing these Super Mario games where literally he's like on ice near the edge of a cliff. And it's freaking me out. I'm like thinking I'm dreaming. Um, but they're, they're telling me all about like what to do. But at every level, at every level, at every step, I need their instruction. I need their help. I just can't do these games. I'm not a gamer. All right? We need Jesus' instruction and grace. We need his help at every level. Here they were, waiting. Jesus' whole family is there, his bros, his mom, his friends. 120 gathered in the upper room. They're waiting. It ended up being about a period of 10 days where they were joined together, constantly in prayer. Now, prayer reveals where their hopes were, were resting. Waiting was not inactivity, but expressed dependency for them. Now, we've all been in a place of anticipation and waiting. Does it push us to places of prayer? It says that they were constantly together in prayer. And what does prayer reveal? It reveals who we're trusting, what we're leaning on. What does it provide for us? It provides a place of rest. It provides a place of safety. Verses 15 through 23, Peter gives a speech, and I, I want us to see something very special in verse 16. He says, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, 
who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. We'll pause. Listen, he says, the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Now here we have evidence that the Bible is actually the word of God. Spoken through the mouth of David, the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. The Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. They knew. They knew that scripture was divinely inspired. This was God's word. The Bible is the word of God. And they also understood that David, King David, played a prophetic role. And so Peter goes on to quote Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, written by David the king. So these songs are messianic in that David is anticipating one who would sit on his throne forever and ever. This Messiah, this anointed one. And Peter applies them to the present situation because, well, Jesus is now enthroned forever and ever. And in light of what the scriptures said, and after much prayer, they realized they needed to pick a 12th apostle to replace Judas. And now anyone familiar with Israel's story, the history of Israel, will remember that there were 12 tribes. 12 tribes. They needed 12 apostles. Because the apostles represented what God was doing in restoring Israel to himself. They laid out the qualifications, they prayed, and then they did what would have been a fairly normal thing to do back then. They cast lots. There's a lot of just ideas of what this could have looked like, uh, but many believe they were writing names on stone and uh, putting it in a pot, shaking out, and whichever one came out, and that's what they went with. Now, was this chance? What did they do before? They asked Jesus for clarity. They set out qualifications. It came down to two. Which one do we choose? They were trusting in God's sovereign guidance. Now, admittedly, we don't see this kind of decision-making in the book of Acts ever happen again after the Spirit of God is poured out. But it's interesting that they were leaning still in when they were acting this way. They were praying beforehand, praying after. They were trusting God to guide in every moment. And Matthias is added, and they continue to wait for the gift the Father promised. Now, what is anticipation all about? Because as they're waiting, there's anticipation that's building. They're waiting eagerly for something that they know is going to happen. What's going to happen? The gift the Father promised will be poured out. And what will this gift enable them to do? To be witnesses, empowered, to be witnesses, to carry on the ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus gave his first followers a commission. He gave them instruction. But now it's reached us. Now it's our turn. Jesus ascended on high with all authority and power. But nothing's changed. He has still ascended on high with all authority and power. The gift of the Father, it comes to us when we place our faith in Jesus. God's presence, his personal presence, his spirit. With us, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we'll learn more about the pouring out and the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen next Sunday. But the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is with us that we might have the power that we need to be witnesses for Jesus' sake here and now. So is there a growing expectancy that Jesus is able to work in and through us, local church St. Pete? Because like Jesus' first followers, we're called to walk in obedience. We're called to walk in dependency, marked by prayer, anticipating and expecting God to do great things in and through our lives, to work in us and through us. 
They chose the 12th apostle and they wait. And that's where we're going to end today. With them waiting, anticipating, expecting Jesus to come through with what he said would happen. And Jesus does come through, which we'll learn about next week. Are, are, are you expecting this empowerment? Are you believing that actually you and I, we continue the work of Christ, that Christ is continuing to work through us to reach people with the news of his rule and reign? It's been given to us. What a privilege. What an honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we've learned here today. The instruction from Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the anticipation of what will come. Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with an eagerness. Lord, an anticipation of how you want to use us today, here and now. Thank you, Lord, for what the ascension means. That Jesus, who has been given all authority, all power, has now commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. To baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can be confident that Jesus is with us to the end of the age through the Spirit. So help us, Lord. Help us as followers to be dependent and expectant. To be people of prayer eagerly waiting for you to do what you so faithfully do through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 3, 1-4 says, If then you have been...